The Australian Greens Party say that their vision is for a generous Australia, one in which we significantly boost our diminishing aid budget to meet our international obligations to the world's poorest, and where we help those who are most affected by the impacts of climate change. At a public event on 29th March, Senator Richard Di Natale, leader of the Australian Greens, outlined the party's full aid and development policy for the 2019 federal election. Listen on to hear how this policy enacts their vision for Australia. All right, good afternoon, everyone. And welcome to the Development Policy Centre of the Crawford School of Public Policy. Uh, my name's Stephen Howes, and I'm Director of the Development Policy Centre. Uh, let us begin by acknowledging and celebrating the first Australians on whose traditional lands we're meeting. And let us pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Uh, we're really delighted today uh, to be able to welcome Senator Richard Natale, the leader of the Greens Party. I was telling Richard that um, you know, he's the first leader of a party to come and speak about aid and development uh, at our centre. So we've had uh, ministers before and uh, shadow ministers, but it's great to see a leader of a major Australian political party uh, take aid and development uh, so seriously that they're prepared to commit their time to it and come and explain their, their party's policies. Uh, I also told Richard he needs no introduction. You all know he is the leader of the Australian Greens. Uh, he's going to talk for about half an hour and then um, he has to leave a little early, but he has agreed to take uh, to have a Q&A session. So uh, without uh, further ado, please join with me in welcoming uh, the leader of the Australian Greens. Thanks so much, um, Stephen. I really appreciate the invitation today. Let me begin by acknowledging the Ngunnawal and Ambri people as the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. I want to pay respect, as, uh, respect to elders uh, past and present. You know, First Nations people uh, have been here for more than 60,000 years, and yet it's what, a couple hundred years since this land was colonised, and a real drop in the ocean and yet we're really stuffing things up pretty badly. Our marine environment, uh, our uh, river systems, uh, our forests, and of course we're seeing the breakdown of our climate. So there's never been a more important time for First Nations people uh, to determine their own direction, to provide a voice to Parliament, and really so we can also benefit from their history and knowledge of how we care for this country of ours. I'm gonna talk about the aid program today, and I'm going to talk about it in terms that we don't use much in politics. I'm going to talk about it in moral terms, because our aid and development program is inextricably tied to our values. Fundamentally, how much aid we give, how we use it, is a moral question. We need to ask ourselves, what sort of society do we want to live in, globally and locally? Do we want a world where people can't feed themselves or support their families? Do we think it's morally right that children in Pakistan continue to suffer from malnutrition because they don't have access to sanitation? These are kids living with chronic diarrhoea who die an awful death. Where multi-drug resistant TB is rising rapidly in our region, in PNG, where people who are living in poorer nations bear the life threatening brunt of climate change, more than those of us, of course, who live in the developed world. You don't need me to tell you that we are living at a moment in history where there are appalling levels of inequality. 
Uh, a stat that Oxfam published recently, for me, sort of encapsulates how extreme that inequality is, where we had in 2015 62 people, 62, having the same amount of wealth as 3.5 billion people. That, it's not just a shocking statistic, it's, it's abhorrent, and it speaks directly to our values. Now, we know that most of us here in Australia, not all of us, but most of us represent the lucky few. And we believe our, our philosophy, the Greens' philosophy, is one that is grounded in the notion of our collective humanity, that lifting people out of poverty, no matter where they live, is a responsibility that we all share. And that's the value that underpins our commitment to a growing, decent aid budget. To put it Simply, wealthy countries like Australia should be doing what we can to create a more equal and just society. At the very least, we should be reaching the commitments that we've made internationally to have a decent aid budget. In simple terms, when it comes to achieving the Sustainable Development Goals, we need 0.7% of our GNI to be reached by 2030. That's why we're bringing this policy to the current election along with a costed plan for how we get there. It's not good enough to just ignore or worse, raid the aid budget, as the coalition has done. And it's not good enough to pledge, and I'll quote uh, the shadow foreign minister, to rebuild and grow the Australian aid program in a timely manner to the fullest extent that the financial circumstances allow. That's not a commitment. What we need now is an unequivocal commitment that we're going to get our commitment to international development back on track and in line with international standards. And that's why the Greens plan to increase Australia's aid budget in a linear trajectory to reach 0.7% of GNI by 2030 is so important. It costs about $10 billion over the Ford estimates and we'll fund that by doing something that people in this country don't want to talk about, by challenging the notion that we should be reaching some arbitrary 2% target when it comes to defence spending. What we're saying is we're going to return defence spending to long-term trend levels. See, there's a lot of talk about extremism in politics right now. We're at the heart of it. I hope you're all feeling safe, because apparently we're a big, big threat to the country. Um, it's the Greens' policies that look radical at the moment because of the state of modern politics. You tell me how it is this, at the same time as Australia plums the lowest depths we've seen in our aid budget at just 22 cents per $100 as a proportion of GNI, that other countries, some of them in worse financial shape than we are, can spend 70 cents per $100 of their GNI. And not only just spend that money, enshrine it in legislation and have it as a bipartisan commitment. It says everything you need to know about the current government and the state of modern politics. Like those people who denigrate refugees, Muslims, Africans, the Jewish community, the attacks on the aid budget are part of a broader campaign in Australia and globally to divide the community to make this a question of us and them. The arguments that we hear cropping up in the federal parliament that Australia look after our own before we look after others, it draws from the same well as the racism that comes from people like Pauline Hanson and Senator Annan. 
But I expect that sort of rhetoric from people like Anning and Hanson. None of that comes as a surprise. The politics of fear and division is part of who they are. It's part how they, it's because of that politics that they've been able to divide the Australian community. But the tragedy here is that the two major parties haven't stood up forcefully enough to this division in our community. Indeed, some of them have actively encouraged it and allowed it to flourish. Hanson and Annie, Hanson and Annie have been egged on by some of their coalition partners and often supported by a compliant Labor Party. Look at the issue of refugees and asylum seekers. For years, what we've seen, both major parties dehumanise and marginalise a community of people who have risked their life, fleeing war and persecution, committed no crime, people who have now been abused, some of them murdered in our offshore detention camps under the care of ministers like Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison. When you have a regime that forces young kids to starve themselves to death, to self-harm, when you have a regime that some people describe as mental illness factories, when you have refugees being uh, equated with terrorists and murderers and rapists, what you do is, what you, do is you f feed and nurture that culture and atmosphere of, fe of uh, fear and division. Yet we're told there's this bipartisan consensus where we can't do anything else. This is the only response to the issue of people fleeing, uh, fleeing persecution. In fact, worse than that, you have people like Peter Dutton who goes back and starts challenging even the very notion of what a multicultural society looks like. It's a man who says it was a mistake to settle Lebanese Muslims. There's a man who says that Africans are responsible for violence and that people in Australia can't go out at night for fear of being attacked by Africans. The current Prime Minister, try as he might like to dismiss it, actually floated a strategy, an anti-Muslim strategy, in an effort to try and score a few chief political points. There's also a report recently that he wanted to spend tens of billions of dollars to round up people living in the Australian community and to intern them in camps. And thankfully, some people within the coalition stood against it. All that's happening in the context of our defence budget ramping up. Every single day, $99 million spent on our defence budget. And you just simply can't scrutinise it. It's a sacred cow. There's this bipartisan consensus that says if we're going to spend money on health or education, it deserves scrutiny. And yet when it comes to defence spending, we don't have a right to question some of those incredibly expensive purchases that are being made. Indeed, just a few days ago, the Australian National Audit Office found that transparency in the Department of Defence is actually decreasing. Hard to believe, but it's get, things are getting worse at the same time as we're ramping up the amount that we're spending in the defence industry. Of course, it's no surprise that government's made it very clear that they have a, a plan that's built on ramping up our uh, defence industry and exporting weapons of war, rather than one that promotes sustainability. We could be exporting renewable energy expertise. Instead, what we're doing is we're fueling the global arms trade. And it's a plan, again, that 
sadly, has been backed by the Labor Party. This consensus that we see on national security is actually unhealthy and it's dangerous. And it creates this situation where any criticism of a strategic direction is either held down or it's ignored. In Senate estimates a few weeks ago, I asked some very pointed questions of the Foreign Affairs Minister. Australia continues to sell military equipment to Saudi Arabia's National Guard. The Saudi regime, we know their involvement in the murder of a journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. But they are now involved in a conflict in Yemen where people have been killed, many of them going about their business, attending weddings, children on the way to school, people buying groceries. Yemen's on the brink of the world's worst famine. There are human rights atrocities occurring every day in that country. What's been the response from the international community? Well, Germany, Italy, Denmark, Finland could go on. Multiple countries have said, enough's enough, we're not going to export arms to Saudi Arabia. The UK House of Lords have found that arms sales to Saudi Arabia are, are illegal, and even the US Senate has called for an end to US support for the Saudi conflict in Yemen. What's our response? Well, we continue to spruik and sell our weapons there. We've got no commitment, Senate estimates, absolutely no commitment from both the department and the minister that the weapons we're selling to Saudi Arabia aren't finding their way to Yemen and aren't being involved and aren't involved in the um, atrocities that are going on there. No commitment that our weapons are not contributing to what are going to be found, I'm sure, in the not too distant future to be huge breaches of our international obligations and war crimes. Now we've got a very different view, but a very different view. And if we are radical, we're a radical voice for peace. What we want to see achieved is a defence budget that meets our long-term trends, where we put the brake on those purchases, like the purchase of submarines, some of which may well be obsolete by the time they're in use, and we've put a stronger focus on our aid and development budget. We believe in leaving the detail of the design to the experts, but in principle, our aid budget should be pro-poor, climate-focused and gender-sensitive. We should play to our strengths and do the things that we've done well in the past. Things like helping to strengthen civil society networks, supporting community-based adaptation to climate change and working to empower women. Our budget should commit our fair share to global humanitarian financing and should support local humanitarian leadership. You know, next year, Australia is going to host the Asian Ministerial Conf Conference on Disaster Risk Reduction. What a great opportunity for Australia to work with Pacific partners and increase our investment in disaster risk reduction in the region. We believe that our aid budget should be overseen by an independent development oversight body and a dedicated minister, so that we've got the skills we need within government to deliver both a generous and effective aid program. We want to see a stronger focus on the Pacific for our development program, especially as we face the impacts of dangerous climate change. And I wanted to take a few moments just talking about the Pacific. Climate change is quite literally an existential threat to some Pacific Island countries. Some of these countries may be wiped out. For many years, we've heard stories of communities forced to relocate as rising seas swallow land and their homes. 
And we know that many more Pacific Islanders face the risk of displacement in the future, particularly in the atoll countries, Kiribati, Tuvalu and the Marshall Islands. To be severed from one's ancestral home epitomises the grave injustice of climate change. The impacts of displacement aren't just material. They don't just affect people's livelihoods. They affect a community's deep cultural ties to its land and seas. It's time to think seriously about how Australia should respond to the profound challenge of displacement in the context of climate change. And if we're going to do that, we need to listen very closely to those people on the front lines of the climate crisis. Our starting point must be to recognise the right of communities to remain and flourish where they are for as long as possible. So this means, first and foremost, dramatically stepping up efforts toward Australia ending its own climate pollution. You know, yesterday we announced our plan to transform our energy system from one of the oldest and dirtiest in the world to one of the cleanest and smartest, to transform our transport systems, to improve the way we do agriculture, to draw down carbon into the land. We're the only party that is prepared to talk about the single biggest contributor to climate change, and that's coal. Coal is the leading contributor to climate change, and Australia is the leading exporter of coal globally. If you don't have a plan to deal with climate change, uh, to deal with coal, you don't have a plan to deal with climate change. See, 80% of the coal that we dig up is shipped off overseas. And if you've got a global outlook, you understand that it doesn't matter where it's burnt. Whether it's burnt here or overseas, its impact is just as catastrophic. So we've got a plan to phase out coal exports and to transition to 100% renewables by 2030. The good news, more than 170,000 new jobs if we get this transition right. It allows us to create a new export industry in renewable energy, in hydrogen. And of course we know, critically, for our neighbours, it means that we give ourselves a chance of restricting those catastrophic impacts on their local community. We know that regardless of what we do, some change will be locked in. So in, all, in addition to rapidly drawing down pollution, we've got to increase support to vulnerable communities so that they can build the resilience to the impacts of climate change that won't be avoided. That's why part of our aid and development policy commits $1.6 billion per year over the Ford estimates in climate finance. It reflects Australia's fair share of the global target for climate financing, with an equal amount being leveraged from the private sector. But while much can be done to minimise the risks of forced displacement, we know that after decades of failing to heed the warnings of scientists and frontline communities, and no matter how fast the world acts to confront the crisis we're facing, many more communities are going to need to relocate. And that's why it's important they're able to migrate safely, with dignity and on their own terms. Put simply, those facing displacement in the context of climate change must have avenues through which to maintain dignified lives, retain sovereignty over their resources and uphold their identity and culture. Australia has a moral responsibility to support those bearing the full brunt of this crisis 
and just as important that we have the practical means to do so. There's no one simple solution to the challenges of migration and displacement in the context of climate change. We know it requires a series of measures, but as a first step, how about we engage in a detailed and forward-looking dialogue with Pacific leaders, with civil society and communities to, term, to determine the best role that we can play in supporting countries and com communities dealing with the challenges of forced displacement. We'll be led by them and ensure Australia upholds the rights, choices and dignity of all Pacific peace, uh, peoples. We also think it's critical to see Australia develop a climate strategy for the aid program, which the current government has flagged but hasn't fully released. Let me turn to an issue that we'll be talking about in the Senate in a moment, uh, next week. Given what appears to be cross-party consensus on the importance of the Pacific to our foreign policy and to our development program, it is deeply disappointing, indeed I think it's shocking, that the coalition, and it must be said with the support of the ALP, is going to be focused on an Australia-first infrastructure investment program in the region, apparently as a policy response to China's influence. Of course we need huge investment in climate-resilient infrastructure in the Pacific. Of course we do. But the government's plan to introduce legislation to finance infrastructure through EFIC, which is Australia's export credit agency, with no apparent consideration of Pacific needs is of huge concern. Just as bad is the fact that EFIC would continue to be permitted to use fossil fuel projects. Now, what a slap in the face to our Pacific neighbours who have urged us time and time again to, get, to bring down climate pollution and here we are using Australian dollars to build infrastructure that will make climate pollution worse. We're going to do everything we can to make sure that the rushed EFIC amendment bill doesn't pass the Senate next week. And we are urging the Labor Party step back from the deal that it looks like you've done with the Coalition and let's make sure any support we give to our Pacific Island neighbours is done through the lens of reducing climate pollution. Now just to, to the politics. We've got an election in a few weeks' time. Um, I've made no secret of the fact that I can't wait for Australians to determine their verdict of this government at the ballot box, and I hope they turf them out and turf them out unceremoniously. Um, make no mistake, it doesn't matter who the next government is. We need the Greens in the Senate to hold a new government to account. When it comes to international development, this government's got a shocking record. But don't forget, it was the ALP who cut the international aid budget to the tune of $5.8 billion by deferring budgeted commitments when they were last in government. And it was the Greens who worked tirelessly to make sure that the government's attacks on civil society last year were amended so that NGOs and inter international development organisations could continue to do their good work and advocate for people who don't have a voice. We've obviously got a big context here in Canberra, and I want to acknowledge my colleagues, um, uh, lead Senate candidate for the ACT, Penny Keevers and uh, Tim Hollow, a candidate for Canberra. Um, in the Senate, the Labor Party will get a senator elected and it will be a contest between Zed Seselja, a conservative hard-right senator, or our lead candidate here in the Senate. What a great opportunity for Canberrans to express their values in the next Senate election here in Canberra. And of course, we've got a new seat called Canberra, one of the most progressive seats 
in the country, and Tim Hollow would be a fantastic choice to be the inaugural member for the seat of Canberra. We hope that if there isn't a Greens foreign minister, that Penny Wong is the next <laughs> foreign minister. But we'll need the Greens there to remind Labor that our financial circumstances do, in fact, right now, allow us to give, to give generously. So governing's about making choices. And the choices you make are underpinned by the values that you believe in. We do believe in our collective humanity. We believe in the question of making sure that people who are living in poverty get the means to be lifted out of poverty. We believe inequality is wrong, not just because it halts economic progress, not just because it's bad for people's health, but because it is morally wrong. Our current government's made the very deliberate choice to slash our international development budget to its lowest levels ever. And instead what they're doing is they're pouring billions into increasing our defence budget and supporting some of the most murderous regimes in the planet, on the planet. So when you hear this debate about extremism in politics, let me remind you that the extremes in politics reside right now within the current government. Extremists are at in the heart, the heart of this government. When you have ministers like Peter Dutton espousing the divisive rhetoric he does, when you have a prime minister bringing a lump of coal into the parliament and indicating his support for new coal mines and potentially new coal-fired power generation at a time of catastrophic climate change, that's extreme. The Greens will continue to proudly call for the Australian government, whether it be the coalition, which is the current case, or a new Labor government, to get our priorities right, to express what I truly believe are the values of most decent Australians. To increase our aid budget to where it should be, so that we can genuinely play our part in helping to lift people out of poverty, adapt to climate change, and be a strong voice for human rights in the region and around the world. Thank, Thank you. you very much. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>